Hello, and welcome to Farmers Capital Conversations. I'm your host, Casey Silveria. This podcast aims to expand your social, intellectual, and economic capital. Investing on and off the farm is hard enough. Here, we will provide insightful stories and resources to help out. Full transparency, this is our shameless way for you to like us and hopes you partner with us down the road. Lastly, there are no ads here. All I ask is you enjoy and share if you find value. Now, on to the episode. Yeah, I mean, right now I have $140 million in builds that are in process right now. So the interesting thing is self, you know, like all statistics, things get lost in the nuance, right? So if you look at a national average, yeah, maybe using those metrics, you may think that we're saturated. But the interesting thing about self-storage is that it's a hyper localized business, right? You get 65 to 90% of your clients will come from a five to 15 minute drive time around your facility, or which usually translates to a three to five mile radius around your facility. Okay. Hello, hello, listeners, and welcome back to another show of Farming for Passive Income. I'm your host, Casey Silveria. Today, we are guested with Fernando Angelucci. Mr. Angelucci has built a portfolio of over $200 million in self-storage assets across the country within the last four years. It's really impressive. Um, Fernando diversified his investments between purchasing existing cash-flowing assets, building ground up, Class A facilities, and converting tired big-box retail stores like old Kmart's into premium self-storage for consumers. Um, In addition to his own assets, Fernando provides investors with off-market facilities at drastic discounts, also provides capital for strategic partnerships and opportunities for passive investors to participate in his syndications. So Fernando, really appreciate you coming on and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Casey. Yeah. So Fernando, you have a really fun story. And if you could, I'd love for the listeners to hear, you know, where you got started and really why you got into self-storage, if you don't mind. Yeah. So um, son of two immigrants, uh, they kind of had the old school American dream for me, you know, go to school, get really good grades, um, get a job at a Fortune 50 company and then retire with a pension in like 40 years, right? Uh, unfortunately for them, when I was 16, I read the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and that kind of changed the entire trajectory of my life. So I still did, you know, get the, de- get the degree, you know, get to school. My grades were all right. They weren't the best. Um, but I actually ended up graduating from University of Illinois with a ag bioengineering degree and then went to go work for, uh, Dow AgriSciences in Iowa. So Lasted there for about 13 months before I got fed up with having a boss and started my real estate journey. I actually started in the single family side of the world. So uh, wholesaling, single family, flipping, buy and hold, and then trading up into larger properties, multifamily properties. But then I just started getting so tired of the way tenants would treat us. You know, we're trying to provide Mm. a service and they kind of look at us like these big you know, bad guys. So, um, went through a pretty difficult eviction. And, uh, at that point I said, you know what, I think it's time to get rid of these assets and focus on something else. So started winding down the portfolio and then purchased my first self-storage facility in August of 2018. And the rest is history. Wow. So it makes sense. Like you start in single family. I feel like a lot of us, I myself also started in single family, just kind of happens when you buy your first home 
and then you either move, you get into something else. So it's a very typical um, strategy to get into investing via single family to start. Yeah. But the the tenant situation is an interesting one. Could you dive in a little deeper on that, on the eviction story? Yeah. So, you know, in the beginning, I didn't have the experience to know that it's not just all about the numbers. So I was chasing yield, which means I was going to, um, let's call them challenging neighborhoods and buying rental properties because I saw, you know, double digit cap rates. Um, so yeah. this particular event was on the south side of Chicago in a, in a pretty rough neighborhood. And I had a six unit apartment building and one of the tenants, they stopped paying the second we bought the, the building. And then, so we tried to work with them, knock on the door, you know, work something out, see if there's any way we could structure a payment plan and they just would avoid us completely. Um, so then we had to go through the, the eviction route, but they were what I would call professional tenants. They knew kind of how to bend <laughs> things to comp keep extending the timeline that they'd have to show up to court. So, you know, they'd uh. be ripping out smoke detectors and CO CO2 detectors, um, or carbon monoxide detectors. They would, I mean, they did all sorts of things. So it took almost eight months, um, until I can actually get the, the writ, uh, to be able to go in with the sheriff and, and, and remove them. But by the time we did that, they had caused like 20 something thousand dollars in damage to that one unit. They, they poured quick set concrete down the, the plumbing. They cut all the electrical wire through the walls. It looked like they had some type of like rotary saw that they used. Um, they, they stuffed up the, the plumbing in the kitchen with like rags and towels and just left the water running. I mean, it was, Whoa. I mean, it literally pushed me back like four years in profitability on that that one investment. So now I was losing money on it instead of making money. So I just said, you know what? And then dealing with the Cook County court system, they're extremely tenant friendly. They're not as friendly as say like New York or San Francisco, but I'd say number three on the list easily. And I said, you know what? This is, I don't like that the laws are against me in this asset class. So I'm going to move to an asset mm -hmm. class where the laws support me. Right. Yeah. It's strange that municipalities structure their laws and governances in such a way because it's a disincentive for investors like you and I to go in and provide good housing for people. Right. Yeah. I mean, you can, there's, if you look at San Francisco, you look at New York, you look at Chicago, in the neighborhoods that need this type of infrastructure improvement and need, you know, fresh, you know, buildings and, and rehabs, no one's doing it because the risk reward is just not, it just doesn't make sense. So you're, you're totally right. It's weird how it, it, they purposely disincentivize that. Yeah. Strange. Well, they think of it from a completely different angle, but we don't have to get into that, but sounds like you made the right move. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so one of the reasons why I love self-storage is because of the laws behind it. So as opposed to be guided by you know, tenant landlord law. Um, it's actually lien law or what's called property law. So the difference is when someone places their possessions in one of my storage units, I de facto get a lien against their possessions. And because it's not habitation, right? Um, the second they stop, right. Yeah. <laughs> the, the second they stop paying, 
uh, I, I, you know, I give them a grace period to pay. We try to call them. If they don't respond, then we overlock their unit. So we put our, our own second lock onto their unit that's already locked so they can't get into it until they pay. And if they still don't pay within 30 to 45 days from that period, I hold an auction. I sell off their goods. Usually that plus the lien fees and auction fees and cleaning fees, that makes me completely whole. So I'm not even negative on on the auction process. And then usually the same day or within two days, I have a new tenant that's ready to move in with all their stuff. So it's so much easier to operate. And all of the laws, you can, they're very easy to find if you just type in, you know, Illinois compiled statute self-storage. It's just a couple paragraphs and it's all written in the owner's favor. Mm-hmm. And is that pretty typical across multiple states that you're investing in? I'd say the majority of the U.S., um, maybe like 47 to 48 out of the 50 states. I can't speak too much to California just because I haven't – we've never done a deal in California. But you know, we've done 46 transactions in the last four and a half years. And every state we've ever operated in, the laws are extremely favorable. Mm-hmm. That's good to know. And it makes a lot of sense. I mean, just looking at the – when you look at the risk that you have going into especially like class D, let's call them class D multifamily apartments, like there's just a lot of risk because of the tenant base. And when you switch into self-storage, you're dealing with people's consumer goods and a completely different set of laws. Yeah, exactly. And you touched on a super important metric for us, which is risk. Um, you know, at self-storage syndicated equities, we the goal is to mitigate downside risk while providing tax advantage income to our investors, but with a kind of social stewardship component to that. So the interesting part is, you know, I'm a engineer, so I'm a numbers guy. Um, so I looked at, okay, let's look at the risk return in, in numbers over the last five real estate cycles for self-storage. And I found something that was very interesting. First of all, storage performed better than almost every asset class. I mean, over a 35, 40 year study period, storage was returning between like 17 and 18% average annual return. You know, multifamily was like at 12 to 13. Mm -hmm. So then most people would say, well, if the return is really high, that must mean the risk is really high. And that's the interesting part about self-storage is that's not the case. It's an asymmetric risk return profile. So if you look at, let's say like the last two down cycles that we've gone through in, in real estate. So, you know, 07, 09, during that time, the S&P 500 dropped 22%. Um, multifamily was dropping at seven to eight percent on the on the realist on the REIT level right the real estate investment trusts level I knew a lot of mm -hmm. individual investors that lost everything they had to go into bankruptcy foreclosure all that stuff self-storage dropped like three to three and a half percent in value during that time which makes sense right because the people are downsizing they're changing jobs they're moving to more affordable areas with more opportunity they need to put their stuff somewhere right and then at the same time, then you look at the pandemic, right? So during the pandemic, the government basically told the entire U.S., you don't have to pay your rent. They didn't really say that, but that's what everybody heard, basically. That's what all the tenants heard. And that was a huge problem. So during the pandemic, um, there's this research firm called TREP. So they're a commercial mortgage-backed securities research term, uh, firm. 
Okay. During the first three quarters after basically the world locked down, of the 1,700, 1,800 CMBS loans that were made to self-storage investors, only three were more than 30 days delinquent. During that same time, so that's like a 0.17% delinquency rate. Mm -hmm. So during that same time, multifamily was defaulting at a rate of 1,800% higher, 18 times the default rate of self-storage during that time. So, you know, I was lucky that I didn't have any rental properties at that point. In Chicago. Yeah, or anywhere. You know, we we had them all over the place um, in the past. But then not only... Did we not get crushed? We we had some of the best years we've ever had, ever. I mean, 2021, industry average across the United States, self-storage was increasing in rents 6.7% month over month. So almost 70% increase in revenue in one year during 2021. It was crazy. There was just, was there was no storage. That? Just no sh- limited supply? Super limited supply. People were shutting down, right? So now they had to live at home. They had to probably free up some space to work or to have the kids go to school. So then they put their stuff in storage. You know, storage, you don't really, there's not a lot of human interaction when you go to storage. So, you know, if you go to a self-storage facility during the pandemic, you probably wouldn't see anyone else, especially the ones that were, you know, open air. So you were still able to operate like that. People were downsizing. So, you know, mm-hmm. losing their jobs, they couldn't afford their rents or their apartments anymore. So then they move in with friends or with family, put their stuff in, in storage. So it was, it was such a crazy metric to see. Yeah, that it, it, I would not have expected that really, because when you think about the consumers, it's like, they're probably spending less, they're saving more. And so they're not buying anything. But the flip side of that is more people are moving, more people are downsizing. And I think what's happening is I was just looking at this market recently. Basically, the entire valley of this locale was 100% occupied. And I feel like this trend is just continuing. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Do you think that's happening or is it stabilizing? No. So we're seeing... Year over year, more and more people are using self-storage. So just a couple of years ago, it was one in 11. Now it's one in nine people in the United States use self-storage as of t- beginning of 2023, late 2022, when that metric came out. And the reason why is you got to think of like the two largest generations and what they're doing right now. So you got the baby boomers that are retiring in mass, something like 16,000 people a day right now. They're moving out of their five-bedroom ranch in the suburbs, and they're moving to one- or two-bedroom condos or active living communities or assisted living communities, and they're putting all of their stuff in storage, right? So that's one side. The second side, you look at the second largest generation, which is the millennials. And the millennials are not like their parents where, you know, at age 18 to 21, you buy a house with five bedrooms in the suburbs. It's the exact opposite. First of all, affordability is a huge crisis in this country right now. The second piece is that millennials like to be near the action. So as opposed to being some Mm -hmm. far-flung suburb, they prefer to be downtown, right above the, the nightlife and the restaurants and the entertainment. Uh, and they're opting for a smaller living space. So instead of having a, you know, 
3,200 square foot house, they have a 800 or 1,200 square foot apartment and they use a storage unit, almost like an external closet. So when it's winter, they put their summer stuff in there. When it's summer, they put their winter stuff in there. They have their bikes and kayaks and, you know, what have you. That's all you know, being put into storage. So when you see where are the highest congregations of storage in the nation, it's always in like the downtown areas of big cities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I myself am doing that right now. I moved from a three, two in the suburbs and I was during the pandemic. I was like, it was almost giving me more stress because it was more a lawn to take care of. I don't have an animal. It was too many bedrooms. I didn't even need so like, why don't I just move downtown closer to the foothills? I can hop on my bike and ride up the mountain. Right. So I think a lot of people are doing it. But then the, and the just to play devil's advocate, people are saying, well, <clears throat> since downtown during the pandemic, everything was locked down. So city life was nothing. Mm -hmm. So everyone started to get more space and move out into the suburbs. So do you think which one is at play more? Yeah. And, you know, for, for us, we benefit from both. So I think mm -hmm. the millennial trend is more of a permanent trend where the opposite movement is more of a temporary trend because people were going to the burbs just to not be suffocated. But anytime people move, they're usually using storage. It's very rare mm -hmm. that you're, you know, the days that you move out and the days that you move in are perfectly overlapped and it may take a few days or weeks to move. And so all those people are using storage. Another thing which is unfortunate is, you know, one of the reasons people use storage is because of the, you know, they call it like the three or four D's or something, right? So death, divorce, downsizing. I think there's two or three other ones that I can't remember the, the, the alliteration. But, you know, unfortunately, there was a lot of people that lost their lives during that time. And those people had stuff that because it was so quick, you know, relatives didn't want to get rid of it. So they would put it into storage. So it is unfortunate, but that is another reason why I think we saw that almost 70% increase in 2021 of rents just blowing through the roof. Because typically a storage investor never wants their facility at 100% occupancy ever because your NOI suffers. So what you really want to aim for is like 92, 93% occupancy so that you have just enough units of each size that you just start jacking up the rents to test the market on those ones. And if someone rents, then the, the next one goes up another $20, $30, right, to see if someone – so it always makes us more money to always have one or two of each unit empty where we can test the market on rates. Yeah. I was actually listening to a podcast you did. I can't remember which one, of course. There's been lots of them. Um, but you were saying once you reach 90% occupancy, throw on a wait list for the consumers. Yeah. I thought that was so, really smart. Especially if you run out of a certain unit size. So you may be, let's say, 100% of your 10 by 10s and your 10 by 15s are full because those are the popular sizes. But you still have mm -hmm. a bunch of 5x5s five or you maybe have some 10x30s. So you're able to create a wait list. And not only does that wait list help where if all of a sudden you have an, you know, an auction you weren't expecting to have, so then you have someone quickly to, to fill that in. But at the same time, when you go to sell, that wait list itself carries value 
to the new buyer because they say, look at the pent up demand. He has literally names and emails and phone numbers of people that are waiting to rent in this market. So that pushes down your cap rate or pushes up your price. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's really smart. Um, it, it says multiple things to the market, to the consumer and to the investors also in, in those, you know, investments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I was looking at some more stats because like you, I'm a numbers guy. I have a finance degree and I'm always looking at numbers for various reasons. And one thing, one of the big numbers is people say that nationally we're oversupplied with self-storage. We have over 50,000 facilities of self-storage and compare that to a post office where we have 32,000 post office. And maybe we have 4,000, I think it was 4,500 Walmarts across the state, across the United States. Mm -hmm. Like those are crazy numbers. When you think about 50,000 self-storage facilities and people say, you know, I'm just getting into the space and helping investors diversify into self-storage. And they say, well, it's very saturated because of those stats. But at the same time, you hear professionals in the space like you saying, we still have pent up demand. Yeah, I mean, right now I have $140 million in builds that are in process right now. So the interesting thing is self, you know, like all statistics, things get lost in the nuance, right? So if you look at a national average, yeah, maybe using those metrics, you may think that we're saturated. But the interesting thing about self-storage is that it's a hyper-localized business, right? You get 65 to 90% of your clients will come from a five to 15 minute drive time around your facility, or which usually translates to a three to five mile radius around your facility. Okay. So you can say, you can't use these blanket statements like, Hey, Denver is saturated or Hey, Chicago is saturated. You have to say, this is this five mile radius pocket saturated. And that's where we find opportunity. Mm -hmm. So yeah. for example, right now you see this massive migration to the Southeast, right? Uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Georgia, Florida. There are areas there where there's self-storage facilities that have a two or three year wait list because there's just no availability. And at the same time that there's no availability, there are these huge home builders building thousands and thousands and thousands of homes. And th the new people moving to the area have no options. So that's where I'm building, right? I go and I find these five-mile pockets that everyone's 100% full. The rent rates are through the roof. There's wait lists of two to three years. And then I build a, a self-storage facility there. There's a metric that it's kind of now getting phased out, but it's a good like quick back of the napkin net metric. I wouldn't use it for really hardcore underwriting, but it's called the supply index number. Supply index number is the number of net rentable square feet in a trade area divided by the population in that trade area. Okay. So, so like if, five miles. Right. Or, or even yeah. less. Like sometimes you have some trade areas that are so built up that it's three or like if you're in downtown Chicago, the trade areas are like one mile or less, right? Because okay. there's so much population. Mm -hmm. So we like to be, depending on the area, we like to be, you know, if we're buying existing self-storage that already has operations, we like to be like seven and below. If we're building in like a pretty stabilized market, doesn't have a lot of population growth, we like to be like five, you know, net rentable square feet per capita. But then you have markets like Central Florida, 
between Tampa and Orlando that are exploding in growth where you have markets that you see like a 12 or a 15 per, 15 square foot per capita supply index number. So on the surface, people would be like, well, that that's oversaturated. But then the reason I don't like using that number anymore, it, you're not accounting for the population growth that is exploding in the area and all the new houses. So the metric I like to use is secret shopping, all the competitor self-storage facilities in my trade area. If they're all literally 100% full with two, three-year wait lists, that means there's pent-up demand in that market. Yeah, and then that's we exactly can build. what I did yesterday. Right. Yeah, that's really smart. I mean, it's also like when you ju- – they publish this data. Like new developments go in all the time. They'll have marketing. There'll be press releases. Mm-hmm. And if you're smart about it, you will know about those fac- or those new constructions and those – new builds much before the press releases even go out. Right. Yeah. I mean, we all, all we, before even the, the press releases, what we'll do when we're looking to do feasibility in a market to see if it makes sense is we'll literally call the permitting department. Uh, not only the permitting department, but also the economic development committee, uh, maybe even the zoning department. And we'll say, has anyone called you in the last six months inquiring about potentially building a self-storage facility or have you granted permits to people that want to build self-storage facilities or are there people in process in the permitting process? And that will give us a better idea if there's competitors coming online that we didn't account for just by doing our secret shopping or our feasibility study. So that helps a lot Mm -hmm. as well when we're identifying a market. Yeah, it's really smart and it's all about relationships, building those relationships. They'll tell you what you need to know. You just got to pick up the phone and have a conversation with them. Yeah. And I mean, most of these, for example, I love always starting with the Economic Development Committee because their entire job is to bring money into their municipality, right? So they're like the rah-rah cheerleaders for a local municipality. So they'll tell me stuff just to get me to come in. And then I back check that by actually talking to people that are the ones that basically their job is to say no which is zoning and permanent department, <laughs> right? Unless all your I's are dotted and your T's are crossed. And that kind of helps give me a feel for where the market's going. Mm-hmm. That's smart. Yeah, test them against each other. And then because of that, we'll also pass on certain markets that there is opportunity to build. But then as soon as we start talking to municipality, we realize like how much of a nightmare it's going to be to work with them. That we just say, you know what? we're just going to go find another opportunity because clearly this is going to be a nightmare. It's going to take us 18 to 24 months and we can't have investor capital sitting that long. What do you base that on? Like communication frequency or not even that. I mean, just literally asking them, you know, if I were to bring a self storage proposal, if I wanted to rezone, I'm thinking about buying this, this lot over here. If I brought this before city council, is this something that, is going to pass or is is going to be met with great challenge? And if they give me answers like, oh, we'll never, you know, Mm. there's a good chance that that thing, we want retail there. We don't want any self-storage, right? Or we want a restaurant there. And they'll straight up tell me like, or they'll say, yeah, you know, we're interested to hear you, but it's going to be a, you know, got a six month wait list before you can even get on the docket to be heard by the city. And then, there's some municipalities that will make us pay fees before we were even have a green light for the pro- like to get onto their docket. We'd have to pay fees. And I was like, this is not talk about a wait list, right? Got to pay money to be on a wait list. 
So, I mean, I like, for example, the last couple of developments I did, I did one in Ohio where the zoning meeting, I was buying a Sears building and converting it into a self-storage facility. Um, the zoning meeting was a Zoom call with like six people. They asked me three questions and within 15 minutes, they gave me unanimous approval to change the zoning. No crazy forms and having to supply like sometimes these municipalities they want me to do a whole architectural set before they give me approval and i was like that's going to cost me one hundred forty thousand dollars. there's no way right these guys were like just if you want to you don't have to but if you want to like you can just hand draw like on a piece of paper like what this is going to look like and i was like i can do that that's not going to cost <laughs> me anything right that's great I, that's very interesting you bring that up because i'm i'm scoping out an opportunity very similar to that. Uh, I think it was a Kmart way back in the day, huge intersection across from a huge grocer. And so I'm interested in, you know, doing that exact thing. So I just need to do my due diligence there on if it's even, you know, feasible, but at the same time, you know, there's like you referenced earlier, what is the, the square footage in that, you know, locality? Like is right. a mile or two miles. Like, so that's something that I need to dive into a, a little bit more, but simply getting on those calls, they'll, they'll tell me a lot. Yeah. So there's a lot of managers where they're not so, really trained well to not give up their, um, their facilities data, if you will. Right. Like all of our managers, they know what secret shopping is. We, we teach them, we secret shop our own managers to see what they give up and what they don't give up about our facility. And then we train them around their responses. So that helps quite a bit. Um, you know, the, like I said, I, we're kind of phasing out the use of supply index numbers because it's just, it doesn't tell you much and it, mm -hmm. it uses bad assumptions. It uses averages right across states and countries uh, and the country, which I, I don't think is very it's good for back of the napkin, but if you're actually seriously considering chasing a, a, an opportunity, the secret shopping is the better way to go. Like if, if all your competitors are full and the rates are high and climbing, that's a better guide of, Hey, should I convert this Kmart into a storage facility or not? Mm -hmm. Okay. Noted. Take that into account for sure. Well, Fernando, thank you so much. We've, we're at like 30 minutes now. Um, it's a Saturday and you're in Chicago. I'm sure you're ready to enjoy the weather a little bit if it's yeah. nice. Um, so I, I'd like to leave our listeners um, with one thing as a, as a nice takeaway. You've provided a ton of value um, in strategic um, self-storage investments and how to mitigate risk, you know, best practices. And really appreciate you coming on, sharing your story. Of course. Um, but, but is there one thing that you'd like to leave us with today? I mean, it, I'm, I'm somebody, I love to share knowledge, education. If you guys want to learn more about self-storage, you know, you can go to our website. You can follow us on our, all our social media channels. We put out a bunch of free education on how to do this asset class. Nothing, you don't have to pay for anything. So you can, you know, follow self-storage syndicated equities. Or if you follow my personal channels, uh, my handle is always at, uh, I think it's the storage stud. So if you follow any of that on social media, you can find it. But then what I also tell people is if you just want to reach out, I'm, I'm very easy to get a hold of. Uh, I make this offer all the time and nobody usually takes me up on it. But if you want to call me, you can just call me or text me on my, on my cell number. It's 
8090. It's my real phone number. Shoot me a text, say hi, or if you have any questions about storage, I'm more, more than happy to expand on, on any one of these topics. That's great. Yeah, thanks for providing that. We'll also provide those in the show notes. And it's kind of surprising for me. Like, I'm surprised you don't get more calls from like gold diggers. <laughs> it's so funny because like on calls, I'll even, or on podcasts, I'll even say, hey, you know, even though I'm making this offer, I know 99.9% .9 of you listening will never actually take me up on it. So you th I've been on over 100 podcasts now. So you think that my phone will be blown, being blown up all the time. I yeah. maybe get one or two text messages a month from somebody that heard a podcast being like, hey, really like the content. I'm thinking about doing a self-storage deal. It's my first one. It's in this market. What do you think? And then I'll respond to the letter. Holy crap. Like, this is your real number. I'm like, yeah, I told you on the podcast. It's my real cell phone number. Like, so people are like surprised that I, I respond. Yeah. No gold diggers yet, but just people that want to do deals and want to learn more about the, the storage space. Yeah, th that's great. Cool. Well, Fernando, thank you again for coming on. And yeah. for all the listeners out there, thanks for sticking around. Now you have direct access to Fernando. <laughs> thanks for having me casey absolutely all right we'll see everyone bye